MSW Media. Prevail. This is the new program pro politico. Histoire, la sécurité nationale. Crimen organizado, dinero sucio. Global corruption. Ta brutbu za demokratiju. Y ahora, ATP. Et maintenant, con ustedes, su anfitrión, I'm Greg Oliar. This is Prevail. Welcome to the program. We've got a great show. Nelson Lichtenstein is here. Nelson is the author of a new book called A Fabulous Failure, The Clinton Presidency and the Transformation of American Capitalism. I've read the book. It's terrific. Nelson is a research professor at UC Santa Barbara. In his long career, he's written extensively about the American labor movement. Um, He wrote a book about Walmart. He wrote a biography of a former president of the Auto Workers Union. And this book is interesting because it really looks at Clinton, especially the economic policies of the Clinton presidency, which, you know, I lived through. I was around in the 90s. I was in college and then had my first, you know, couple of jobs out of school. So it's interesting now to go back and, and look at it. Uh, you know, from a historian's lens. And Nelson's really smart. He's a fantastic writer. And he comes at it from the pro-labor angle, uh, which is interesting because Clinton himself was not really pro-labor. You know, he was a liberal as far as some things go, but in terms of the labor movement, he wasn't really... Nelson uses the word disdain to describe Bill Clinton's relationship with the labor union. So there's lots of other stuff in the book, too. There's the whole healthcare battle and NAFTA and the Japan-Germany thing and how we sort of inadvertently opened up China, you know, as an unintended consequence. Uh, it's it's a really good book. So I encourage anybody that wants to have a better understanding of where we are now uh, to buy it and read it. You know, really well-written Um, And interesting, because again, I was there. So looking forward to bringing you that discussion. I don't have much to say up front. I know there was a a lot went on this week, like a lot, a lot. This is avalanche of news. The big story is going to be the government shutdown, which is just, it's just fucking dumb. This guy's dumb. Kevin McCarthy's dumb. There's no reason to shut the government down other than Donald Trump wants the government shut down. And instructed his minions, and Kevin McCarthy is absolutely a Donald Trump minion, to shut the thing down. They don't want anything. The Senate already passed the bill that's going to fund the government. Mitch McConnell's for it. Mitch McConnell thinks Kevin McCarthy's dumb. And and even even the Republicans in the Senate are blaming the House for this. Um, It's totally a shit show. The Republicans there are melting down. And what happened is McCarthy and Biden came to an agreement in May about the number of what the budget's going to be. And they agreed to it. And now McCarthy's trying to renege on the agreement, which, you know, that isn't how shit works. That's not how stuff works in Washington. He's doing it because he's being pressured to do it. He doesn't actually want anything. He hasn't put forward any serious alternative proposals. It's all bullshit and, you know, bread and circus and dumbassery. And, you know, it's really going to affect American people. Uh, Lots of American people are going to be affected in a bad way if the government shuts down. So, again, this is the MAGA shutdown. That's what 
the House Speaker Jeffries called it the MAGA shutdown. And it's not even a political thing. Like, that's what it is. It's, it's a MAGA shutdown. These guys are dopes and they're shutting down our government to protect the head of their party, who's a criminal who has like, what, 90 charges against him? in four different jurisdictions and probably more is coming. And that's it. Why do we want to shut down the government? They, they think they can bleed and starve all of these investigations into Trump. That's really the only reason why they're doing this. Um, I read a piece by Ryan Grimm over at The Intercept who was writing about it. That was a pretty good roundup of this. And he writes, uh, here is where McCarthy faces a choice. He can prevent the Senate bill, which has the support of Mitch McConnell and a host of Republicans from coming to the floor. His right-wing rebels have said that if he passes it with Democratic votes, they'll depose him. And they might, but A, they don't have an alternative who could get 218 votes. And B, Democrats could vote to save him, which would be C, hilarious. I think Ryan is right. <laughs> it, 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 would, it would totally be hilarious. So it's either going to be that or it's going to be that they're going to shut everything down. And it's going to end up that way anyway, because, you know... We all know who's to blame here. It's not the Democrats. God, I didn't watch the, the debate last night, but apparently that thing was a shit show. <laughs> it's just people yelling at each other and pointing fingers and trying to get in zingers. The zinger, the debate zinger. I mean, I, I don't know. There, how many have there actually been in real life, in real time? Like four, five? Everybody keeps trying and trying and trying. And, you know, yeah, it's a great soundbite, but I don't think it works that effectively. You know, I, I just don't. Uh, I knew Jack Kennedy. I work with Jack Kennedy. You're no Jack Kennedy. That's the best one of all time. Lloyd Benson, RIP. But, you know, this stuff doesn't happen very often. And these clowns, and they're all clowns. Everybody on the stage for the Republican thing last night, for the Republican debate last night, is a clown. They be clowned themselves by even appearing at that thing. Um, I think the only person there that wasn't a clown was Gavin Newsom, who was like taking it to poor overmatched Sean Hannity, which is kind of funny too. So I don't know what's going to happen. The government's probably going to shut down, but hey, you know, everybody else is on strike. Why not? Uh, <laughs> that's not true. The screenwriters aren't on strike anymore. They, they won, you know, which means unions work, guys. This is what happens. Unions work. And when other unions see that strikes work, they uh, get up their nerve to strike. And it's this rolling thing and it's wonderful and it feels like that's where we're headed now in the United States, where there is a new rise of the labor movement. So, um, again, perfect timing for Nelson to come on the show and talk about the labor movement in the country and, you know, how it kind of played out in the 90s during the Clinton years. So without further ado, we'll be right back with Nelson Lichtenstein. I'm rich and I'm crazy. I'm young and I'm bad I'm Crown Prince Mahmoud bin Salman I own all the oil I purchase Phil Mickelson And water in Arizona And what it all comes down to Is that Saudi money can buy anything Cause I've got Jared in my pocket And Elon by the short hairs We did 9-11 We tolerate no dissent We lead the world in beheadings 
I said I'd be different I let Saudi women drive Then I killed and chopped up Khashoggi And what it all boils down to Is that no one's really got the nerve to call me out Cause I've got Jared in my pocket And Europe in the palm of my hand What it all comes down to, my friends, yeah Is that all of you motherfuckers need my oil I've got the whole world in my pocket Cause you won't give up fossil fuel Nelson Lichtenstein Welcome to Prevail. Happy to be here. You have written a book called A Fabulous Failure, The Clinton Presidency and the Transformation of American Capitalism. I think it's a well-timed book for many reasons. Um, you know, the, the rise of labor, and we'll get to that like later in, in the interview. Uh, looking back on the 90s, I think right now is topical and interesting. Um, and, you know, just starting off, it's a great book. It's you know, meticulously researched, obviously, but also really well written. Um, you know, I'm a novelist. I like good writing. It's very, very well done. There was many moments in it that I'm like, oh, this is good. This is a good, Thank you. good Thank sentence. You. Good. And even the way that it's now, labor stuff, you know, because you're a labor historian, this can be sometimes dry and you mm -hmm. make it not dry. So I think it's a very good book. And I think, that, you know, the first thing is that people should know that. And uh, congratulations. I think it's 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 terrific. Thank you very much. Thank you. Indeed. Yeah. You are your research professor at UC Santa Barbara. Um, as I said, you're a labor historian. Um, you've been into this for a very long time. You, re you wrote your thesis on the Congress of Industrial Unions. Uh, I think that's what it is. I had to look it up, the CIO. Uh, and <laughs> so what drew you to this topic to, to make your career about studying and writing and researching labor? Yeah, I would say this, that um, the very word labor historian, I, I'm not entirely comfortable with because... Yes, of course, I started off doing that years ago. I uh, wrote a biography of Walter Ruther, the head of the UAW, whose name is now being invoked you know, in the, in the current uh, strikes and things. Um, but I but I found as I moved along that, uh, you know, if you're going to study labor, you got to study capital and you got to study politics, you know. So uh, I, I found that increasingly the case as I would be doing my my research and writing uh, back in the 80s and, and 90s. Uh, and then and actually in the, and in the uh, first decade of the 21st century, I wrote a book on Walmart. I thought, yes. I mean, gosh, what's going on? What, what is this company? And, you know, and hey, it's bigger than General Motors, which I had always thought that was the model for all capitalist uh, enterprises. And then, you know, labor could confront that in one way or another. So then Walmart, so I wrote about Walmart. And actually, um, I actually got the idea for this book. Um, I was in Finland uh, on a Fulbright, and I'd, 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 it was 1993. That's be really before the uh newspapers were online and every couple of days I'd hustle over to the American reading room or whatever it was called the you know and read the New York Times and this was the fall of 93 and there were just huge long articles on the um, uh Clinton's health reform but and I was reading about the early 30s and doing work on the early 30s but anyway as I was reading about the 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 Clinton health reform 
you know, it, 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 I thought it was sort of an X-ray into the nature of American capitalism and politics. You know, who is in favor it? Who was against it? Big companies versus little, uh, certain kinds of insurance companies versus other uh, unionized firms like Chrysler versus, you know, the Pizza Huts who were against it. It just struck me as a kind of a way of thinking about uh, uh, sort of not just politics, but the political economy. And of course, it had a working a, a class uh, aspect to it. I mean, the, the health reform was probably the Clinton's biggest uh, uh, reform initiative since the, the Great Society. And it was in the interests of it would have helped out millions and millions of uh, working Americans, uh, you know, lifting a certain burden of, of, of expenses off of them. And I, and but I, you had to study the nature of capital and the nature of, of government. So, so so I find myself uh, uh, a kind of I don't know what what I'd call myself. I am a I'm I'm I do look at the world from the perspective of working class people. But that yeah. doesn't mean you you just study write about working class people. You have to write about their enemies, their context, the ideology in which they function, etc. So that's and that's what the sort of the Clinton book is a way of getting at. You know, in one way or another. Yeah, that's very well said. I didn't mean to limit you in scope because there's obviously. Yeah. There's a lot of there's a lot going on there, and you you talk about it all very well. Now this this book has an interesting origin story, yeah. which you talk mm-hmm. about at the beginning. You co wrote you co write it with uh, with Judith Stein, who is no longer with us, yeah. and you got pulled into the project. So well, she, yeah, she was she was, I, I'd known her for decades. She'd written some books. Again, she started off as a student of Marcus Garvey, and and uh, you know that sort of sort of thing in the in the in the sixties and seventies and eighties. And then she she wrote about the steel industry, and she wrote about the nineteen seventies as a kind of policies and economic policy. There, she, she was in some ways her trajectory was somewhat similar to mine. Um, she uh, she just begun this project. Uh, um, really just had begun it, sort of sketched it out, you know, uh, about you know, the Clinton, well, the Clinton era. Uh, and she died in 2017. Um, so uh, her agent uh, took it, uh, wrote me some emails, said, you, maybe you would like to, you know, here's a, here's a, here's a, a, a book, uh, you, you know, it's, it's, it's got a contract. We had a contract then with Simon and Schuster. I'll, I'll tell you something funny about that. And I said, oh, wow, that's interesting. Maybe I, I should get, uh, you know, uh, a kind of um, more, I've, I've published with trade publishers, but I thought, oh, another one. So I, I, I looked, actually, I got my grad students and we had a meeting and discussed it. I mean, I, I, I rely a lot on my grad students. They were, I, I think they they're very, they're young and smart and hip and intelligent. Anyway, and we just, you know, and then, you know, I sort of plotted it out. I, I did really vastly expand what, what she had been up to, but she just begun. She just begun. I mean, the most important thing I took from Judith was, well, Clinton is important to figure to, to study, and we should study it seriously. The whole that whole moment. I mean, that was really the most important thing. I, I would say this one funny thing though: uh, in the in the summer of 2017, when when this agent I had to began to sort of shop the book around again, one of the words that came back was. Clinton fatigue. <laughs> and I thought, yeah, I guess so. In, in the summer of 2017, we're finished with them. <laughs> Forget it. <laughs> anyway, so luckily, the book is coming out somewhat later than that. So maybe it's not that I mean, it's it just we're just uh, there's a time for a new a new look at the at the Clintons and putting it in context. Yeah. So that's, I mean, that was 
the history of that book. Yeah. My experience in that is it's the same thing. There's Trump fatigue now. So nobody wants to read about well, him, right. even though I guess everybody wants to read about him because he's on TV right. all the right. time. So, right. uh, yeah. Um, okay. So the title of your book, which is, again, it's a fabulous failure. It, yeah. it appears, if, and I, I think so, it's it's from a fabulous decade, which is what the economists of the time called right. the 90s. Yeah. Janet Yellen uh, yeah. and Alan Blinder wrote a very little book pamphlet in 2000. Yeah. Called A Fabulous Decade. And yes, you there are. Unemployment was low. The stock market boomed. The uh, budget was balanced. Uh, actually, poverty did decline, and 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 all those things were were there. There they were they were they were real. I, I think they were kind of built on sand. I, I and and there would be busts that would follow, uh, and and of course uh, inequality continued, etc. But but nevertheless, uh, there's good reasons for that. That that, that I mean, interest rates remained low. Uh, there, there was a kind of a boom of various sorts. Um, uh, and uh, in the late in the late nineties, it didn't last, but it was there. Uh, and so, yes, they 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 wrote this in, two, in the year two thousand. But looking back from twenty well twenty five years later, you know, you can see you can see all the problems and the and and some of the things that were, you know, I, I mean, my view, by the way, I call it a failure because the, the 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 for many people on the left, the progressives, they simply see Clinton in a kind of unproblematic way as a neoliberal or, you know, uh, a kind of uh, just utterly opportunistic figure who, you know, subverted welfare reform and, and the crime bill and whatnot. Uh, and and there's a lot of truth in that, of course. But I but looking at, at him and the circle of people he he was affiliated with in his many years as governor and then where he'd come from, uh, he came into the White House uh, not as a neoliberal. He wanted to manage capitalism. Uh, the, the famous uh, slogan put up on the uh, uh, Clinton campaign war room was uh, by uh, James Carville was the economy stupid. Now, what that meant was stay away from culture war issues, which Bush and Buchanan had been doing. Uh, keep keep your mind. The, the real issue for, for, for your constituency is, is, you know, reviving the economy and making the, the standard of living of working class Americans. Americans better, and they, they, Clinton was well aware that uh, there'd been a stagnation in that. Uh, he accept, he really agreed with one of his political opponents, uh, Paul Sangas, who in 1992 in the campaign and said, uh, "The Cold War is over. Germany and Japan won." You know, and Clinton agreed with that. Now, what that meant was there are other ways to organize a capitalist economy than the one that. Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan thought was best. There were other ways. And I mean, they they looked at, you know, to, to Germany and Japan at that time seemed to be the real threat. So there was a lot of interest in Japan, you know, how, you know, the Ministry of Finance, uh, uh, you know, uh, directing investment, you know, in the government, et cetera. There's lots of lots of a lot of people were touring Japan and 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 both in 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 fear and envy. Um, the Germans also Clinton Clinton gone all, all over the world's governor looking for models. Uh, that to to indust to help Arkansas. Uh, I mean, there were problems with this. I mean, he he didn't want to confront. Well, he like Walmart and Tyson's Food were were Arkansas companies, and he was not about to confront them in any way. But nevertheless, he he wasn't a triumphalist. In other words, at the end of the Cold War, the Republicans often oh triumphalism oh you know we did it 
you know, success. I mean, capitalism, you know, etc. Clinton didn't see the world that way. And uh, he was looking for ways. And he had people like Robert Reich and Ira Magaziner. And then Laura Tyson, he chose as the head of the Council of Economic Advisors, first woman ever to do that. Okay, that's interesting. But even more important than that was she was an unorthodox economist. Um, had At Berkeley, where she came from, they had a, a very vigorous uh, kind of grouping interested in sort of how do you manage trade with other countries? How do we use industrial policy? That's a phrase that's, that's come back uh, under the Biden uh, era, the Biden administration. How do we use industrial policy to target investment, you know, back to the Midwest, for example? Example. Uh, and she, you know, that was her view. Uh, she, the, the, her competitors for head of the Council of Economic Advisors were Larry Summers and Paul Krugman. And at that time, both of them were much more orthodox free traders, and they were not interested in industrial policy, certainly not Summers. But she got the job, you know, Clinton. She, I mean, that was the indication of where Clinton's mind was uh, uh, at that time. So I don't think he was a neoliberal when he walked into the white house and nor were a, not everyone a lot of his 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 people around him i think he became that after a series of defeats and compromises and and all sorts of things uh he became he much be became that uh and and would you know uh, he wouldn't have called himself that but that was what he was de facto but certainly by the end of his second term I think, um, yeah, one of the things in the book that was interesting is that you mentioned the Japan thing and how yeah. fascinated and fixated yeah. everybody was on Japan. And you think when you go back and watch even movies from the era, yeah. like, of course, Die Hard comes out in, what, 89? So it's everybody's you know, in oh, awe yeah. of Japan. Oh, the Japanese yeah, right, style right. of organization and this and that. Now, right, you, right. You, at the beginning, you said you had to study the enemies. Um, this word neoliberalism get thrown yeah. around a lot and right. it, it has always puzzled me, I think, because it has the word liberal in there, but it isn't yeah. really liberal because there's something, yeah. some Milton Friedman stuff coming in. What, what exactly does it yeah. mean? Yeah, you're right. It's very fuzzy and maybe yeah. we should, it should be a word banished because it's, it's used, overused, overused. I tried to, well, I, 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 I use it, but I, I try to do it in moderation. Here's what I, I mean, there are different definitions of what it is. Here's what I think it is is the core of it in economic terms, although it has some cultural and and sort of uh, kind of uh, uh, social aspects to it as well. But the core of it in economic terms is the absolute mo mobility of capital is privileged. Uh, and that means uh, both financially uh, and in terms of deregulation at home and also trade abroad. Um, and uh, and and that that is a that's a core thing uh, for it. It it doesn't necessarily mean, although I think it, the the input is a kind of austerity, you know, at home. It, it, I mean, I'll get to that in a second. But why I think I think you end up that way. But it but it doesn't necessarily mean that. Or nor nor and here I here a lot of historians would disagree with me. I don't, for example, think neoliberalism necessarily means the rise of a carceral state. That's a very popular view on the left today. I, I'm not quite sure that's true, although certainly under Clinton, the crime bill did, in fact, increase uh, uh, dramatically uh, money for prisons. And, and my favorite character here uh, to exemplify the neoliberalism is Robert Rubin. So Rubin is this, he becomes Secretary of Treasury. He's unquestionably the most important person in the Clinton administration after Clinton himself, and sometimes more important than Clinton. Okay. Uh, 
so where does Reuben comes out of a liberal democratic, you know, family? His mother voted for Henry Wallace. He voted for and raised money for George McGovern. Okay. He was very interested. He was a racial liberal, unquestionably. Uh, and he thought capitalism was often unstable. He but his his job at Goldman Sachs <laughs> was as an arbitrageur, a, a merger mm-hmm. arbitrageur. And what that meant was when two companies were going to merge, you know, in the run up to that, there was all sorts of uncertainty. And is it going to happen? Is it not going to happen? And Goldman Sachs, in effect, take bets on that. Well, to make that work, you have to have liquidity, absolute liquidity. So in his 25 years uh, working away there, it became in his DNA that the liquidity of capital is absolutely essential. And here, just just a just a reference here to my labor history back when I wrote a biography of Walter Ruther, the head of the UAW, and I was trying to figure out what makes Walter Ruther tick. I said, well, he had been a tool and die maker back in the Rouge in the early thirties. What does a tool and die makers do? Precision planning. They're careful. Mm-hmm. Well, well. Robert Rubin, you know, I, I just, you know, this, you know, what makes Robert Rubin? So Rubin, but nevertheless, Rubin is a is a liberal on many questions. He opposed Clinton's uh, welfare reform, not not in a kind of systematic, vigorous way, but he, but when the votes were taken, he was against it. And why? He said, well, look, capitalism's unstable. Uh, some people become victims of it. It's not their own fault. So, you know, you, you shouldn't do that. So he's a, so here's the thing, though. He's a kind of liberal. He's not a capitalist with a top hat, you know, but <laughs> his commitment to liquidity of capital, deregulation, uh, you know, uh, free trade, I think it stands in contradiction to his, you know, interest in a, in a welfare state or in, in a, in redistribution or et cetera, higher taxes. Uh, so, I mean, so in other words, I, I, I don't paint neoliberals as sort of, you know, a kind of Margaret Thatcher sort of tough, let's smash, you know, let's smash the unions immediately. But, but nevertheless, I think the end result, uh, ends up, you know, uh, in a, in a much more impoverished, uh, society, et cetera. Um, but I, but you're right. This term is, 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 overused and it's uh, has it should be not banished but you know i think i think defining used. it is helpful because it you know, yeah that now that's, you, that's now you define it as, yeah that's i like it now i understand you because now i understand it better yeah, you, I, I think, have it on good authority, by the way, that that Goldman Sachs and specifically the arbitrage desk at Goldman yeah. Sachs is yeah. the root of all evil. Yeah, so okay, you, that's good. All right, I'll go for you that. Know, yeah. You yes. take this wonderful liberal man and put him in hell, and you know he's going to apprentice for Satan for sixteen yeah, years. I say, I say one more thing about Wall Street. Wall Street, Wall Street. I mean, the the investment banks that Wall, they were not. For, they're kind of. They weren't. Well, most of Wall Street is is conservative, Republican, but there's an element that's liberal, Democratic, because, like for example, high taxes. Wall Street really doesn't care about high taxes. They make their money other ways, you know, in 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 stock and 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 in, et cetera. They uh, taxes don't bother them. Even taxes on you know on on the the guys who are making uh, millions of dollars in salary, they don't care. They they make their money other ways. And uh, and also some in Wall Street who do investments in like. In urban areas, they want cities to be viable. They they want their real estate portfolio to stand up. Well, that means you have to you know invest in like mass transit and things like that. So it's not a, a, a accident that people like Felix Rohatton, you know, is a kind of Wall Street investment banker, but also kind of a liberal. Actually, a kind of more of a more of a, a kind of 
well, to the left of of, of Robert Rubin, certainly, uh, and 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 actually a figure that Bill Clinton wanted to put on the Federal Reserve to replace uh, Alan Greenspan, but he failed. It, it that failed in his effort to do that. Um, so one of the you, you just said the neoliberalism thing is this idea of because of the liquidity moving around, the idea of deregulation, and that yeah. seems to me to be a through line of of yeah. you know get basically the mess we're in now. One of the primary causes yeah. of it, I think, is, you know, between Reagan and then through to, you know, Clinton is somebody that yeah. should have maybe ideologically not been so yeah. interested in deregulation as he was. Um, would you agree with that? What, what role is deregulation? Yeah, have, do you well, think? I mean, I mean, right. They, 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 again, the, if you're if you're if your main thing you think is and you think it will ultimately be a good thing for the prosperity of the globe, the world, let's deregulate capital. The New Deal came along in a era of, you know, big factories and a certain kind of economy. And, and the Clinton people, all, all of them, most of them, oh, they were kind of enamored of the idea of a new economy, you know, meaning kind of Silicon Valley and things of that sort. So therefore, we don't don't need the, the kind of regulatory structures that, you know, in the past are outmoded. Gene Sperling made that point. By the way, a, a man who's who's in the um, Biden administration right now, I, I have a few words to say about him in a second. Um, and the, the big deregulations, Glass-Steagall was, was already going out. That was the separation of investment mm-hmm. from commercial banking. But that was already for its formal demise was being was being uh, practically uh, reformed out of existence. More important was derivative. And the the growth of derivatives, which are really, you know, kind of bets. In one sense, they're a form of insurance, but they're a certain kind of insurance which are so highly leveraged that they really are are incredibly speculative. And there was a big fight uh, toward the end of the Clinton administration, 1998 and 99, 99, when uh, Brooksley Bourne, who was head of the Commodity Futures Trading Corporation, now which had been formed years before to 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 regulate, you know, uh, corn and hog bellies and wheat futures. But if you're going to have futures in financial instruments, they would come under her. So she, you know, looked into this and she had people there. They were not, she was, wasn't there. And they said, this is dangerous. And all they had to do was read Fortune magazine to see that, yes, Fortune as well was, was warning against, you know, these derivatives. They called them sharks, uh, you know, alligators, alligators in the, on Wall Street. So they were dangerous. And so there was a big fight uh, in 98, 99. And everyone came down. Uh, against Brooksley Bourne, uh, Rubin, Summers, uh, uh, Greenspan, etc. Clinton, of course, what's he doing in 98? Well, he's consumed with Lewinsky, you know. So in the year 98, uh, where which Clinton says this is the strange, well, the strangest year of my presidency, he says in his memoirs. Well, yes, it was. And who's really the president of the United States in the year 1998? I'd be willing to argue is Robert Rubin. I mean, he is, you know, he is making the, the big decisions. So, you know, they deregulated the derivatives, uh, and uh, you know, that all exploded in, in, in 2008, you know, and to, with incalculable. Uh, damage. We then we then suffered another decade, practically of of, of very sluggish growth, uh, higher unemployment than necessary, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and uh, so you know, this is this was this was a, a function of ideology and interest, you know, on the part of people like uh, Reuben, Wall Street, and and, uh, and others. Um, you were going to say something about Gene Sperling. Oh yes. Okay. So uh, this is uh, he's in the news today. So I mean, this show. First of all, Sperling has been a high-level official 
in every administration, every Democratic administration since Bill Clinton, uh, and and a confidant of the president and everyone. And I and I think that's true today with Biden, and it's true with Obama and and Clinton. So it just shows the way in which people do change, or ideas change, or policies can change, while the personnel stays the same. I mean, usually personnel is policy, but well, we'll get to. So in 1999, Gene Sperling is sent to China with Charlene Barshevsky, who is the trade representative. Barshevsky is a big expert. She knows all about trade, but she has no political clout. Sperling is very close to the president, and the, and the Chinese viewed him as a commissar, you know, kind of you know, figure. So they go there, and basically what they're doing is um, getting all the ducks in a row for China to enter the WTO. Uh, they don't quite do it at that moment, but basically they, they do solve a lot of the problems. And, you know, entering the WTO would mean, you know, much more open trade with China, that Wall Street wanted to capitalize the state-owned enterprises and sell them on Wall Street and make a lot of money, which they did. Uh, it, would, it would mean that the Chinese would be assured of, of a market in the West and, and there'd be a lot of joint enterprises which we, would be established, which would have, you know, making motorcycles and, and clothing and, and now GM's making more cars in China than, than, than in America. So they set that up. It was all established. The net effect of the Clinton policies did not did not actually take place in the 90s, but in the next decade, when a strong dollar and a, um, a open trading relationship with China really hollowed out the industrial Midwest. It was in the it was under Bush that, but it was really the Clinton's policies where you really get the the evisceration of a lot of of manufacturing jobs in the Midwest, and that's dramatically takes place in the first decade of the 21st century. So what is Gene Sperling doing today? He's now the emissary to uh, Biden to Detroit. <laughs> and what is he saying? It, it, there's this whole Green New Deal. They're, they're putting billions of dollars into reindustrializing the Midwest. And he's sort of, and his job is to convince the auto companies to give in to the UAW so you won't have this, this union being against the, the green transition and maybe you have higher wage jobs in the new uh, battery plants. So he's making up for past sins. That's what he's doing. He's, <laughs> he's, he, he's, I don't know if he understands that consciously, but I see that as that's what he's doing. He's atoning for He's his trying sins. to reverse the, the policy he instituted 30, 30 years ago. I have a lot more questions about policies and other things. We have to take a quick break. We'll be right yeah. back with Nelson Lichtenstein. Welcome to the 5-8. This is what we do here. The 5-8, your Friday night hang. We take five of the week's most notable and newsworthy topics and spend eight minutes covering each one. Yeah, it, it, like everything else associated with Trump, it's a walking disaster. Prosecution is important because it's the only thing that starts to puncture their personality cults. I really do need people to remember, like, tell uh, Americans history. Tell the actual story that this country actually did that. What we need to be selling out there is that we are the antidote to chaos, that we are actually um, just for responsible, effective government. There is no greater um, issue that sums up democracy versus fascism than abortion. There is nothing more authoritarian than the state telling a woman that she must carry to term Forced a, birth. A, a, yeah. a pregnancy that she does not want. Five segments, three minutes of evolving animation by Chunk, two revved up hosts, one comic interlude. It's not the end of the world, just some Twitter. 
a special guest. Basically, what we are now is bailout nation in banks. Because nowadays, elections are not about facts. And as many cocktails as we deem necessary. So I'm calling this a Dinesh D'Souza. <laughs> when they go low, bury them. They're already down in the gutter. Join me, Greg Oliar, and LB, Stephanie Koff. Our rants to one another end up being this show. This is what we decided to do with our friendship. Friday nights, live, 5 Pacific, 8 Eastern. It's the 5-8. I guess it's okay. People seem to like it. Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven-part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns, and Money that'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct. From Jack Bryan, the director of American PSYOP, comes the incredible true story of John Mattis, a newly sworn-in Miami public defender in the 1980s who has found himself completely in over his head. I step off the plane, and there is a van with a couple guys with Uzis. And one of them in broken English said, Welcome to Bogota, John. Mattis's first felony defendant has been arrested for having a machine gun and tells Mattis a dangerous secret. He was shipping arms into Central America on behalf of the CIA. As a first-time lawyer, I want to act like I know what I'm doing. But with the help of a Colombian drug smuggler... How much money the CIA raised by hitting up drug dealers? A lot of money, millions of dollars. An Alabama mercenary... They were prepared to die to the last man. I saw this in them. I saw the fire in their eyes. And they made me their war chief. And a newly elected senator, John Kerry. We are looking at allegations of drug running, gun smuggling, conspiracy to commit murder and murder itself. He'll fight to free his client. The judge said, show me in a courtroom how we were at war. Expose an illegal war being run by the White House. I mean, I wanted him involved, but I didn't want to be on record as doing it. And somehow stay alive in the process. I just escaped a kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica. This is Lawyers, Guns, and Money. So you have a man in Armani suit standing on the bow of a boat with a rocket launcher and says, if I lose sight of you, I will launch. You will be vaporized. Available everywhere starting October 29th. Or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now. Okay, we're back with Nelson Lichtenstein. You were talking about uh, the Fed before, and this is something that, yeah. that has puzzled me. And in the Clinton administration, he takes over. Alan Greenspan is there. The Fed, I think, post Paul Volcker with the whole inflation thing, it is viewed in this way that it's almost this mythical presence and has yeah. outsized power. Why yeah. was the Fed so powerful in 93? Right. Why did they cave right. to Greenspan? Well, yeah, I mean, right. yeah. it, one one uh, bi- a biographer of Greenspan, I think, called it a... Uh, 
a, a planning agency that dare not speak its name. In other words, it, it is uh, well, it's independent. The, the Fed is independent, yeah. and that that began in the early early post war period. And we should that should be reexamined by uh, you know in some political context uh, today. Both Democrats and Republicans say, "Oh no, no, the Fed has to be independent." Well, so it's, so Greenspan is there, and the question from Clinton's point of view when they when they enter the White House and start working on the first budget is okay. What's going to keep interest rates down so we can have a a uh, uh, you know a re- recovery? So, for example, Robert Reich, who was an industrial policy guy and, and a, you know Secretary of Labor, and, but actually a little more little influential, he said, "Look, we need in their new first budget. Let's have fifty billion, a hundred billion of targeted investments of training programs. He was big on training of you know kind of direct spending. You know, in, I mean, a, a very small uh, uh, example of what Biden's been doing recently. Um, Robert Rubin says, "No, no, no. Wait a minute." We have to ba- show that we can balance the budget, and that will mean that Greenspan will keep interest rates low because if the budget's balanced, then the government won't so quote crowd out, crowd out private uh, you know investment and, and and bond purchases, and so then we can have low interest rates. And so at one point, I think Rubin says. Reich is talking about 50 billion bucks. I'm talking about a trillion dollars of investment, which will flow from low interest rates. Of course, there'll be no guidance on that. Where would it go with speculation, et cetera, buy, stock buybacks, anyway. But nevertheless, so initially, Greenspan does keep interest rates low and bond traders keep them low. And Clinton's very happy about that. Um, in 94, uh, they get uh, Greenspan gets uh, cold feet. They think that the economy is, it's getting better. And they raise them again. This was called Hurricane Greenspan, because at the very same time, there'd been Hurricane Andrew in um, Florida had wiped out $25 billion worth of you know, houses. And so the uh, Wall Street nicknamed Greenspan's just just ju- just jumping the interest rate up at just a, a, a fraction of a point. Hurricane Greenspan, it destroyed more than $25 billion in, in wealth. It was really a real, uh, anyway. But after that, Greenspan, uh, interestingly, uh, has two ideas which do return to these low interest rates, relatively speaking, and which then sustain a stock market boom and also, you know, lower unemployment. The first idea is we're in a new economy. And I think I mentioned that everyone is enamored by this idea of a new economy, but, you know, kind of obviously linked to, to, to Silicon Valley, uh, high productivity. There was a little element of that, but they, they totally exaggerated that idea entirely. Anyway, so Greenspan actually does a lot of research. And oh, yes, we're in a new economy, meaning productivity is high. But the second thing is, and Greenspan probably emphasizes this more, he, you know, he'd been around since Patco, and he said, "Look, workers are not asking for much more money in, you know, wage increases. Yeah, the economy is improving a little bit here in '94, '95, '96, but workers, and here's his term, not my term. He said this to Congress: workers are traumatized. 
traumatized by the layoffs, the recession, the anti-unionism, et cetera, of the previous 15 years. And he said, workers are traumatized and therefore we can have lower unemployment and they aren't going to ask for anything. They aren't going to ask for more. <laughs> They're scared. I mean, I mean, this, this is like classic. This is like Marxism in reverse, you know, anyway, I mean, classic, you know, uh, uh, I, 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 anyway, and in the proof of this pudding is 1997, there's a strike of the Teamsters against UPS. And like the recent one we had, it was pretty successful. And there was a lot of public support for it. And they got a wage increase. Uh, and right after that strike, there's a meeting of the Federal Reserve <laughs> and the minutes are open. <laughs> and they're saying, what does this mean? Maybe workers aren't traumatized anymore. <laughs> Maybe we we should raise interest rates because workers are feeling a little uppity, uh, you know, feeling their oats. I mean, they're having that discussion. I mean, it's it's like I mean, I tell you, Marx could have could have could have could have choreographed that. And uh, uh, now it turned out the UPS strike, while successful, did not open the door to an era of labor militancy. But never, but just the fact that was their mentality. So Greenspan, generally speaking, keeps interest rates. Uh, pretty low for most of it, and that and that sustains the boom. Now, uh, the the boom. Now, the problem there with the boom is with and and it's called you know asset based Keynesianism. In other words, you know stocks go up, but other things go up as well. You know, it's gonna burst. It's going to burst at some, and it does first in the dot-com boom, which destroys billions of dollars, or tra- really trillions of dollars, and then later on in 2008 and nine. So, uh, you know, those things are unsustainable. But, you know, for a time, that, that was one key to Clintonite prosperity. You mentioned uh, in the Hurricane uh, Greenspan, uh, the yeah. Hurricane Andrew, I just went, my father was a claims adjuster, and he <laughs> went, to, he spent a month or something in Florida yeah. r- driving around, you know, yeah. appraising houses yeah. and writing checks yeah. and God knows <laughs> What all else? Um, is there any like situation where inflation, not not hyperinflation, not super high inflation, but some baseline inflation is good for workers and oh, labor? Yeah. Yes. No, no. Inflation is a, a moderate amount of inflation. Actually, the Fed puts two percent. Uh, Krugman thinks she should be three percent. Uh, yeah, it's good. It, it it makes you know taking out loans a little cheaper. You 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 mortgage a house. You got a house. Well, over time, two percent inflation reduces the real value of that of that mortgage, and that's good. Uh, it helps you know helps uh, creditors uh, make borrow borrow money. Yeah, about two or three percent of of inflation is probably well. The conventional wisdom is that's a good thing. Uh, and yeah, I mean, and the and the and I the, actually actually as a result of this clip moment uh actually janet yellen she was on the fed and she said we you know we shouldn't try for zero inflation let's try for two percent and that became kind of kind of settled now i i'm not i'm not about to to go into that in a in a big way because i don't because i don't know if that's the right figure or maybe something clearly hyperinflation is not a good idea but but zero and zero inflation often means deflation because uh uh you know not everything is the same same and you know you you, you could then be stuck with a if your housing prices are declining which happened in 2008 9 then you then the burden is just insupportable and you and you you walk away from your debts so and clinton is all by the way clinton did want to get rid of greenspan he didn't trust him uh even though uh, he, he thought that the greenspan wasn't orthodox and and later on by the way when bush comes in uh greenspan endorses everything bush wants to do he he wanted to replace him with a more liberal figure but but uh the congress wouldn't do it and really robert rubin was against it so you know uh he basically rubin rubin can basically veto anything Clinton wanted and he did frequently 
Whatever Rubin wants, Rubin gets. Yeah, I mean, um, I, I really do. We need a really good biography of Robert Rubin, and and we haven't, we don't have it yet. Okay, okay. And, and biographers listening to this, please take note. Yeah. Um. So one theme of Clinton as executive, both yeah. in Arkansas and then in D.C., um, is his the word you use is disdain for labor. Yeah. yeah. Um. So what was his rationale with that? Because he appears even when he was in college, he appears to have similar ideas that never yeah. never seem to have changed yeah i just read a, a, a i hadn't seen it before it should have been my book that Hil- the first date that hillary and bill ever went on was they were scabbing at the yale uh, art museum there was a kind of strike going on you know yale had a very vigorous uh, union movement there and they kind of i walked in the back door or something that, you know while the strike was while there are pickets outside anyway anyway yeah but here's let me just preface this uh, remark about clinton is this unfortunately the labor movement in America in probably the, well, probably the 70s and the 80s, certainly, and the 90s, it's at its nadir in terms of, well, it has some power still, but in terms of public perception of it, I mean, it's, you know, what was the leadership of labor doing? Lane Kirkland, he was much more interested in Eastern Europe. That was important, you know, solidarity than at home. He was he was not a tribune. He, we didn't have, a, you know, people like Sarah Nelson and, and Sean Fain and, and, and even Bernie, you know, we didn't, you know, so the, the labor movement itself, uh, you know, it was was kind of in in a stolid and unattractive to liberals this was a period by the way i was very active by the way in the you know in a movement after uh, john sweeney came to power to sort of kind of bring left-wing intellectuals more into contact with uh, the labor movement i think that's happened to a degree uh after you know in, in a kind of in, in the late 90s and, and later uh but before this there was you know uh, the, most most people progressives thought of the labor movement as you know white males you know conservative on all sorts of racial and gender questions and co-warriors after even after the cold war is over so that's you know that's the the world of liberal of liberalism and labor in that period um so clinton you know in arkansas which was a state which actually had had a somewhat more vigorous labor movement than other southern states nevertheless you know he knows he sees where the power is uh walmart tyson's food hunt trucking uh, the the big mules so-called you know etc and you know he accommodates them and and whenever you know and whenever labor is is seeking you know uh whether there's a strike or one of the worst things he did which kind of characterizes the liberalism of that period and hillary it was involved too they wanted to raise taxes to spend more money on education they really wanted to do that raising taxes you know not so not so easy in arkansas so in doing that they demonized the arkansas educational association they they you know they claim they wanted teacher testing meaning you know you are you are protecting you know these their do wells but that was what it you know had a racial component to it anyway hillary and bill did that and he, he got and in, my, in my book i show the absolute coldness the calculation and the and the and the coldness of the relationship between clinton and this and a group that should have been his you know his supporters the school teachers you know anyway he does that then when he's president again 
And here, Robert Reich, uh, who, who, who's, the, who's sort of the liberal in the administration, but he's a liberal who, who's also disdainful of labor. I mean, in a way, for good reasons. As I said, Lane Kirkland is not the uh, Bernie Sanders. He's, you know, he's a very, uh, you know, stolid kind of figure. Um, and so, um, you know, when it comes to labor law reform, of course, fails. It's failed other administrations, too. Uh, there's a bitter strike that I talk about in at Caterpillar in the Midwest, which Clinton doesn't intervene in. Uh, and, uh, you know, he just tries to ignore labor as best he can. I mean, I think, you know, maybe, you know, you could do that to a degree and he gets reelected in 96. But, you know, if, if the Democratic Party is going to become, you know, a progressive and vigorous and powerful force, it's got to have the working class. I mean, whether organized or unorganized, and that's the dilemma that's happening right now. And I think one reason, for, uh, one reason, uh, uh, President Biden will be on a picket line in Michigan <laughs> yeah, in yeah. 48 hours <laughs> uh, is because of that. You know, he's, you know, I mean, that, that we, we, so Clinton, uh, that, you know, that he, he just ignores labor. He, you know, and I think, I think there's maybe one of the larger lessons in this book is, uh, well, you know, or maybe in my life, <laughs> I don't think liberalism can work without labor. That's, I, I guess I've written many books about that. And I think that Clinton, uh, Clinton's uh, travails ex uh, exemplify that as well. I think you're right. And I think this is, this is my own little soapbox based on my otherwise pretty good education. I think that the way that it's taught, the, the, the history of the labor movement, especially in the, the late uh, 19th century, heading yeah. into the 20th, it's so skipped over and glossed over. And so many important things happen with important figures that there's, yeah, people just don't oh, know yeah, about sure. at all. Yeah. And uh, most people in the 90s, I think when they thought about unions, they thought about the baseball strike. That was the big yeah. thing. You know, there was yeah. that. And then if you worked at ShopRite in, as a minimum wage person in high school, you had to pay money to the, you know, right. like these are things that maybe didn't. Uh, you know, right. make somebody like it so much. Uh, so I want to talk about the healthcare uh, yeah. thing mm -hmm. because, you know, mm -hmm. that, that was what they were trying to do. And yeah. let's not even dwell too much on the fact that had it worked, the 30 years of, of yeah. pain yeah. and suffering and everything else would have been avoided. Um, she tried, they tried, Hillary was in charge of it to, to overhaul and improve the system. Yeah. What was she trying to do exactly? And why did it fail? And I, yeah. I realize, like you know, you have a huge section of the book about this. And I, I don't want. Sure. I don't want to reveal too much, but, but I'll be sure. I mean, I mean, I, I think that they saw it as industrial policy. In other words, the, you know, uh, you know, Ford is spending more money on on healthcare than steel. You know, so therefore, you know, you can't sell cars. You know, uh, the Japanese are eating our lunch, or the Canadians, actually, for that matter. Um, so they saw it as industrial policy, and there was a large sector. They thought they could they could push this through because. The, uh, a, a slice of capital, an important slice of capital, was entirely in favor of a health care reform uh, be, that, that would relieve them of, of the burden. It was, it was overwhelming. And they wanted, you know, let's first of all have the Walmarts and Pizza Huts, et cetera, pay their fair share. And they weren't. Yeah. They weren't. And and then, and then you know, also you'd have the you'd, you'd, you'd rationalize the system and reduce costs. Uh, uh, Lee Iacocca, head of Chrysler, uh, uh, was, was uh, said to be uh, when it came to health care. Uh, an Italian socialist, uh, Doug Fraser said that head of the UAW. Anyway, um, so the, part of the argument idea was we will. They called it managed competition, but I'd emphasize again the managed side, not the competition. Competition was I, I thought sort of a throwaway phrase, word for for you know oh, we're not becoming us. It's not becoming statified. But actually, when you got down to it. 
the uh, the mechanism that would keep costs in line and would ensure universality were these health purchasing exchanges set up in every metropolitan area, which would, under the Clinton plan, ninety uh, percent of all employers and, and people employed would be would be purchasing their health insurance through this quasi governmental mechanism. And uh, you know, uh, at, at one point, um, the the head of the Congressional Budget Office, Robert Reichauer, a very smart health economist, he says, "Look." I don't know if competition, capitalist competition, is going to bring down the cost of health insurance. But I do know one thing. The exercise of sovereign power, that is governmental power, that can re- reduce the, the cost of health insurance. And these health alliances were, in effect, governmental agencies. Uh, the Clintons didn't want to say that, but that's what they were. Now, as a result of that, you begin to get divisions within both the ranks of the insurance companies and within the ranks of various kinds of capitalists who saw they were going to be hurt by this or not hurt by this. I think that's the key thing, uh, less so Congress, because the Clintons had made a wager on a section of capital that would be in favor of their plan. They were not entirely wrong about that, but that section of capital was just weaker than other sections of capital, which were now committed and and and, and invested in a low wage, low benefit, you know, uh, uh, program. Walmart would would have as many workers as General Motors, you know, in the late nineties, etc. So um, when when that happened, I think then there then the, and also within the Republican Party, uh, there was the you know, rise of Newt Gingrich, who unlike Robert Dole. Dole was willing to go along. He thought there would be a, re- a reform, but Gingrich said, no, we're going to just hold the line on this. So uh, there were other, many, many other wrinkles to it. But I I did devote two chapters to because I thought that this was a, a this was a key to both the 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 ambitions of Clinton and the and the failures, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's good. It's interesting. And it's uh, it's sad, honestly. Yeah, it's yeah, it, it, yeah. it makes me sad. Um, I've long wondered why people don't make more of a thing about how anti-entrepreneurial it is to to have healthcare like tied to your place of employment. Right. How many small businesses and how many things don't get started up because of that? Because people feel you know like they can't quit. It's like dumb. It's anti-American. You know. Right. right. I I do. Yeah. I think I think the Clinton plan was to the left of what we ended up with Obama. Although although one of the things that here you could say this a good thing about. I mean I something kind of almost inadvertently. As a result of the failure of that, um, Medicaid, which had always been viewed as kind of the, the just a sort of a welfare thing, not not very important, more emphasis began to be put on that. And the the CHIPS program, Children's Health Insurance Program, which you know gave you know was came out in '97, and that actually proved to be very successful. And today. Uh, under Obamacare, the most, the, by far the most successful part of Obamacare is Medicaid. I mean, Medicaid is socialized medicine. Medicaid is what you have in Canada. I mean, for that section of the working class, you know, and in some states like Kentucky, like, you know, three quarters of everybody is on Medicaid, you know, I mean, it's, a, it, it's single payer, you know, it's run by the government. I mean, it, you know, it, it is, and that's been, the, that's, a, it's successful. I think you have this great quote in the book. A politician in Pennsylvania said, uh, Wooford, if criminals yeah. have a right to a lawyer, I think working yeah. Americans should have a right yeah. to a doctor. So, I, I, yeah, that was the, the 92 uh, campaign. And, 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 you know, and he wins very unexpectedly wins this 
senator, senator, senator. And, and, and that's when, and James Carville was his campaign uh, advisor. And Clinton says, wow, this health insurance is a pretty important thing. Uh, I'm going to hire Carville as my uh, campaign guy, and we're going to emphasize health insurance uh, in the, and they did in the early part of their administration. Yeah. So one of the, one of the things about the book that surprised me a little bit was this, and we talked about it before about Japan, because I think so much attention was paid to Japan that um, they didn't really look at China at all. And if yeah. I'm reading it correctly, it looked yeah. like it seems like a lot of these Clinton policies, um, you know, wound up having the perhaps unintended consequence of empowering China in this trade yeah. situation. Yeah. Is that am I yeah. reading that right? Like, what, well, what, I mean, what well, I mean, uh, well, they they did the opening to China, you know, letting the China into the WTO with without the kind of conditions that some people wanted, it did mean that you had a kind of Wild West flavor to the to the trade that took place for the next uh, two decades. I mean, it had begun in the 90s. But uh, I would say that Japan is interesting because uh, lots of people looking at Japan as this, you know, kind of very successful capitalist uh, an economy, second biggest in the world and and rapidly expanding, thought, OK, you know, we should be able to sell stuff there. <laughs> you know? But Japan was closed off. I mean, the, the, the variety of both tariffs and non-tariff barriers. And so the when it came to free trade, there was no possibility of free trade with Japan. I mean, they, they, they just weren't about to do it. They they would send stuff to us, but but we but there's no way that any, Americans could penetrate the Japanese market for anything: rice, beef, oranges, you know, stuff like that. Which is we had. So the Clinton people, um, and they had some very smart people said, "Look, we're going to have to just create really quotas." I mean, I mean, we're just going to go there and and you know say we want 20% of the chips we want you know 20% of the this and that and they had these really contentious uh, negotiations they weren't based on free trade at all they were based on really on uh, you know cartel like uh, manipulation of what the market would be on both on both sides and in the end, it fa- the Japanese just held tough. I mean, that was one thing. They just held tough. Uh, and, and you know, Clinton gave up. But the other thing was Rubin again, Rubin and, and Summers. One reason it might have helped is that the Japanese yen was very strong during this period, which meant the Japanese products were becoming more expensive and Americans less expensive. Well, that's good. Forget, you know, get it. But Rubin, but, the, but a strong yen means American bonds are unattractive. And Rubin wanted the Japanese to buy those bonds to keep interest rates low. So in the spring of 95, there's this sort of manipulation worked out where the, where the yen will get weak, the dollar will get strong, and that'll make it much more difficult to export to Japan. And it really was Rubin's policy that would, that, 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 that won. Now, in addition to that, the Japanese economy is tanking. And so it, 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 it by the mid nineties, it's, it's sort of less of a threat. You know, it has this yeah. big bust, uh, which, which opponents of, um, of kind of industrial policy and managed trade you know, in, in the Republican Party. Ah, this just shows, you know, don't try to do that. The free market's the only thing that'll work. You know, forget about it. Forget about anything else, you know. Now, you talk about free trade and, you know, the other the big uh, program that, that Clinton did was NAFTA. Yeah. Um, so yeah. at which I think Trump tried to undo and then rebrand with but, his own name. They made and it a little better. They, they did, in fact, make it a bit, make it a little better. Uh, the, the only Trump official that Robert Kuntner, an American prospect, a you know, liberal mag, liked was the where some of the, tri- the, the what's his name? Uh, uh, I forgot it. The guy who negotiated the NAFTA, the, re- the renegotiation of NAFTA. So NAFTA, I view as a blunder. And when I say blunder, that means 
a, mist- a big mistake that didn't have to happen. Yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, you could make the argument that with China, this gigantic trading company, tra- com- country, a kind of trade almost was inevitable in some way. But with Mexico, Mexico's entire economy is that of Southern California. You know, it's just not that big. And there was no huge push by American industry to open Mexico. What there was is the Mexican government was you know, run by these sort of elite economist types. You know, they wanted this trading thing open. Uh, uh, And Clinton, um, uh, his posture was, okay, we're going to have trade agreements, but we want to make sure you protect the environment and labor. That was his official position. Um, By this fall of 93, when NAFTA was pushed through Congress, they just finished a very divisive budget vote where no Republicans voted for the budget. And Clinton hated that because it seemed to indicate everything was partisan. He wanted, like a lot of politicians, to have this bipartisan gloss. So he said, oh, okay, uh, NAFTA, we'll, you know, we'll, 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 we'll put it through and we'll get the Republican votes, which of course he did. And a lot of Democrats defected as well. So, but I think it was a blunder. He didn't have to do it. And the political damage from NAFTA was enormous because look, it's racialized. It's, you know, the whole immigration yeah. issue. It's, you know, and people knew that. And Ross Perot was sort of making that argument. Uh, and, and, and so, uh, and it wasn't Clinton's policy to begin with. It was George H.W. Bush's policy. Um, so I, I call it a blunder. And, and, and lots of people in Clinton's inner circle said, let's not do it. Let's do health care first. Hillary said that. So, but they, they, they did it. And I think, and there's a study by um, a, a wonderful uh, economist named Gavin Wright, uh, who looking at, at NAFTA and its impact on the, on the politics in 94 says the single mo- biggest reason that, that the Democrats lost so disastrously in 94 was NAFTA. It, it, NAFTA wiped out Southern Democrats, Southern white Democrats. They were moderate, etc. They were where Clinton came from, but they get wiped out in 94. And interestingly, by the way, NAFTA does not really harm Detroit as much as it does these sort of rural uh, garment factories that you could find all over the, you know, the South and the Midwest, you know, kind of light manufacturing. That's what goes to Mexico and that's in the South and they, and, you know, and then anyway, so that, so I think was a blunder. Yeah. So it was, it was an own goal as they say. Right? Yeah, that's Sorry. right. It's yeah, self-inflicted. Yeah. It, did, it did not have to happen. It did not yeah. have to happen. So in the grand scheme, I like to think about uh, presidential rankings because I don't know. I just it just sort of fascinates me. Um, I, I uh, where do you put Clinton? Where do you think he belongs? Like, is he? Uh, yeah, just just that. I mean, there's a okay. lot going on there. There's a lot right, to we, process. We've but- had a friendly conversation, but I have to tell you, I hate presidential right rankings. <laughs> I know. I hate did. them, and and I think the reason I hate them is that presidents you know, are, they're creatures of a time and space and place and, 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 you know, everything, politics, economy. And so what's, you know, who does better what, I mean, you know, okay, I guess you could have a, a, a sliding scale, as it were, you know, given the, what they face, the problems they face, et cetera, et cetera. Um, yeah. I mean, Clinton, let me say this, Clinton as a manager, as a president, well, on one level, at one level, as a kind of just a political kind of operative figure, he would be ranked very low because he divides the Democratic Party time and time again. 
I mean, you know, one of the things the president does in theory is, you know, keep keep his people on his side. He may get defeated, but he divides them, divides them on trade and on on welfare and on various, uh, you know, deregulation issues. So that that gives him very low marks. OK, he's way down there, you know, on on, uh, you know, as a as a kind of popular leader. Uh, he was a great rhetorical figure. He was a very good. He was very good. He was very good, and uh, he could give a very good speech. So I, I would rate him quite high uh, in in that respect. Um, and if you say the end of the Cold War, uh, the, the the does offer an opportunity, uh, then I'd have to say, well, did he take advantage of that? And the answer would be no. Yeah. So there, I read him low. So, but they're different, you know. I, but again, I have to just say that this is not a, not a game I want to enter into on on this one. You know, uh, <laughs> I do. Th- I, I will say this though: historical reputations, Clinton's historical reputation remains fairly good. In 2012, he gives a very successful speech defending Obamacare at the at the convention. He's held in high regard. Hillary is also a pretty you know a, a popular Secretary of State. The thing that puts the Clintons in the doghouse is Bernie Sanders, uh, certainly among liberals. Bernie Sanders doesn't have to attack Hillary and Bill directly. He just says, here's what I stand for. You know, I'm against the billionaire class and you're giving speeches at Goldman Sachs. And, you know, and that just that contrast is just enough to send at least a a large slice of your audience, you know, into the into the anti-Clinton camp. And I think I think 2015, then, of course, the election of Trump as well um, seemed, you know, I think was put put them their, their historical reputation declined radically at that point. Yeah, I, 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 I think I was aware even in asking it that that's a bad question because it was in the <laughs> margins. I just thought of it as you were talking, but I'm glad I asked because that was very. Yeah. It was a very good answer, and yeah. uh, of course, these things are they're totally complicated, and uh, you know who knows. But on the other hand, you did write a book called "A Fabulous Failure," <laughs> the Clinton presidency. Right. right? I mean, he's, so, he's not. Look, he's not as bad as. I mean, Trump is trying to overthrow democracy. Buchanan, you know, set the stage for the Civil War. I mean, with you know. Uh, uh, you know, I mean, <laughs> you know, Andrew Jackson was a was a mass murderer of, you know, of the etc. Yeah. I mean, you know, so so um, uh, there. I mean, I mean, of course, today also, by the way, another interesting thing about the reputation is Clinton passed two pieces of legislation which were very controversial. One was the crime bill in '94, and the other is welfare reform. The crime bill was not controversial when it passed for a whole variety of reasons. Bernie Sanders voted for it. You know, Bill, Joe Biden praised it. Uh, it was not controversial. It then became controversial uh, later on uh, in terms of the carceral state and things of that sort. The welfare bill, which passed in 96, was very controversial and generated resignations in protest from the Clinton administration. But subsequently, it became less controversial. I think the reason was that, that liberals, uh, the whole thing about Welfare mothers working, that sort of became marginalized in a larger demand for we just need child support for all for all mothers, you know, and, and we had that for two or three years under the, you know, with the the sort of the covid welfare state, you know, yeah. uh, you know, so um, I mean, you know, history can play tricks on reputations. No, it's interesting. It's interesting. Um, OK, so I have one more question because we're coming on an hour. I don't want to I don't want to keep you too long. 
Um, but this is a, this is a good one, I think, to, to end on. So right now, suddenly, like in the last year, almost, it feels like labor is is having a bit of a comeback. You have the auto workers are on strike, yeah. the actors are on strike, the screenwriters yeah. are on strike. Um, there's unions are rising up in places like Starbucks. Yeah. Even yeah. Um, the basketball team at your yeah. alma mater, Dartmouth, is now yeah. voting yeah. to unionize. Mm-hmm. I read. Mm-hmm. Um, so it feels like. We're once again experiencing this interest in unions and understanding what they're all about. Also, I think, you know, you mentioned Bernie, but I feel like the younger politicians who are Democrats like AOC and other and yeah, others yeah, yeah. seem like they're more interested in it and get it more. So are you hopeful about this? What's the pathway forward? What are your oh, thoughts yeah. now? Yes, no, I'm I'm quite hopeful. I, I, I am indeed. I think that the um that there really is a genuine shift in in uh, ideology and mood and, and expectations. Uh, winning begets winning, and I think that the Teamsters won, and I think the I think the screenwriters uh, it looks like they're, uh, they're going to win something, uh, quite a good thing. And then and then I think this auto strike is being very skillfully run. I mean, I'm I've I've followed auto for fifty years, and I'll, I'll tell you one of the great things about it right now is that that there was an insurgent slate, a democratically elected slate, and and this kind of an, uh, they open up the door to the left, uh, you know, to run help run the the auto uh, the the union. I mean, there are people. People who have been critics for for years are now helping to write speeches for for fame. So it's you know that's on one side, but but way beyond that is a is a kind of a, a, a mood and a sensibility, and it's and 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 it's often uh, you know in the the kind of the college educated or wannabe college educated group. That's that's one very important element group of, but also now we have blue collar workers in the Midwest. And so, um, yes, I'm, I am hopeful. Um, and I do everything I can to encourage this uh, reanimation of labor, at least with my, with my pen and my, my computer, if not, uh, and, and my picket sign on occasion. Well, you do it very effectively. Again, I, the book is really great. It, it's called again, a fabulous failure of the Clinton presidency and the transformation of American capitalism, Um, You know, as I said up top, it's hard. I think it's hard to write about this in a way that makes like regular people reading it interested in it. And you do a wonderful job doing that. I think one of the big takeaways of the book is the importance of labor um, in in helping what to fix, you know, what's wrong with society and, and, you know, and help the the bulk of people. So uh, I think you're doing a, a great thing there. Um, where can people find you? Are you still on uh, the site formerly known as Twitter? Yeah. Yes. Oh, yeah. I'm on. I'm definitely on on X, known as Twitter. I'm I'm there. I I'm uh, I'm. A, you just Google me. You'll find my email. I'm all. I'm I'm not trying to hide in any way. I I, I will answer your emails almost always. And uh, you know, I'm at the University of California, uh, Santa Barbara. I can be reached through there. But 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 I'm I'm available. Just just basically put plug my name in, and you'll find, and I'll I'll pop up. You know. Yeah. Excellent. Well, uh, Nelson Lichtenstein, thanks so much for taking the time. Great to meet you today. Thank you very much. Enjoyed it. Prevail theme song is by Matthew Fossett. Serena Zabriskie, Marie Cast, and Martha Acuna provided the introduction in Ukrainian, French, and Spanish, respectively. Voice talent is by Stephanie St. John and me. Thanks to Allison Gill, Molly Hockey, Kenai Williams, Kimberly Johnson, and everyone else at MSW Media. If you'd like to support this program, get three friends to subscribe. The more downloads I get, the better the show does. You can also subscribe to The 5-8 the live YouTube show I do with my friend Stephanie Koff, a.k.a. LB. Tune in tonight for your Friday night hang. Most importantly, please subscribe to the Prevail Substack with updates every Tuesday, Friday, and Sunday. 
Your $6 monthly or $55 yearly subscription funds my work on the column and the podcast. Visit gregoliar.com to learn more. Thanks for listening. Drive safely. Be kind to each other. Try and enjoy yourself. And until next time, we shall prevail. M-S-W-Media.